0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: If you're a regular listener to this show, you know that a couple times over the last number of weeks, we have talked about how it seems there's not a whole lot going on with the municipal election. It's only 18 more days until we go to the ba- uh, the polls and vote. Presumably you're going to go to the polls and vote. I hope you are. But it's only 18 days until we go. A little over two weeks and it seems as though this is the sleepiest, doziest, most uninspiring, most uninvolved, least italicized, underlined, and bold-faced election that I can ever remember. In tomorrow's Spectator, you're going to see a cartoon from our excellent, from the Spectator's wonderful editorial cartoonist, Graham Mackay. It's, the, it's a cartoon about the mayoral race, and it's a picture of Fred Eisenberger, who's written vote yes to LRT in bright red paint on the wall, and he's now asleep. And next to him is vote no to LRT with Vito Scro, and he's asleep. Nothing's happening. Well, then I wake up this morning, and I happen to see on Twitter uh, one of our former mayors tweeting out this line. Is it me, or is the Hamilton election surprisingly quiet? Uh, Thank you. Someone is seeing the same thing I am, I guess, because it seems like nothing is going on. Uh, that former mayor, by the way, his name is Larry Deany, you know him. Uh, he joins us now. Sir, thanks for doing this today. No problem, Scott. I have been saying this now for a number of weeks. I mean, I know that in municipal elections, they don't start six months ahead or a year and a half ahead like a presidential election. But my goodness, Larry, it seems as though we are in dreamland right now.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, Gray McKay's cartoon certainly stole our punchline. It well we obviously feels the same thing, you know. The, 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 the painted uh, yes and no LRT. Everybody's waiting for the paint to dry, and it's taking a long time, and they fall asleep. So you know, it seems that way, uh, and maybe it is that way. Although I've got to tell you, I've also spoken to pretty well candidates from each of the fifteen wards. Um, almost without exception. Uh, not everybody, not every candidate, but quite a few. And I know that they are working hard. So it's a little bit like, you know, the the, the surface um, looks calm and and the duck is paddling like heck but below the surface in the water. Uh, because I know that these candidates, at least in the ward, uh, ward uh, election, are, are working hard trying to get their message out, their signs out. And there's also a little bit of skullduggery going on, I found out. Uh, in a number of areas um, involving, uh, you know, uh, certainly not physical altercations, but verbal altercations um, among some of the candidates. So um, at the meta level, it seems awfully dry and slow. No question about that. When
1: I went on your tweet uh, this morning, and I clicked on it this afternoon again, even some of the people commenting on it, And I've heard this from other people as well, are saying, listen, I live in this ward, I live in this ward, and I've had nobody by my door. I have not had, Larry, at my house, I've had nobody by my door yet. Most people that I've talked to and asked them have said they have had no politician, mayoral or council or school board trustee or anybody come to their house yet. First of all, am I wrong that this does seem rather late for this thing to be this slow
2: well, you know, the tra- traditional wisdom <clears throat> tells you that it's the last two weeks where people really start paying attention and things heat up. So we're headed into that period now, and we've had some action at the mayoralty level um, just um, just uh, today. In fact, with a uh, uh, an electronic town hall meeting, um, also featuring politicians at other levels of government. <clears throat> so we're heading into that frenzy. Um, but it does seem slow, um, and um, and uh, that favors the incumbents, quite frankly. Well, we'll never, yeah, I uh, want to get to
1: that. I want to get to yeah. that in a minute, and I want to take a little more time with that because we're going to be going okay. to a break in a minute here. But just before we get there, do you think this has anything to do with just overall political fatigue because we seem to be just being hammered with politics from the states and from Canada and national and provincial. All day, every day, it's all politics and it's all depressing. Do you think that has anything to do with this?
2: It might, or let me give you an alternate before you go on to break. It may have to do with the fact that there really isn't a burning issue this time. Um, there, they're, I mean, people are trying to make uh, some issues uh, burning, but they're not. Uh, Hamilton has been going through a period of relative uh, growth, uh, renaissance. I mean, everywhere you look, uh, you see uh, construction cranes. Businesses are opening and doing well. Uh, jobs uh, are at an all-time low. Um, and, uh, and people may just be content. And remember, and this is sad to say, but at the municipal level, it's always the lowest turnout. So people mm-hmm. are normally lethargic. And because there isn't a burning issue, people may be even more lethargic. And that's
0: sad, but it may be true. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Chatting with former Mayor Larry DeAnne, who put out a tweet today saying that the election seems to, well, here's the, the exact quote. Is it me or is the Hamilton election surprisingly quiet? We're only 18 days away from going to the polls. And Larry, just before the break, you were talking about the incumbents and how we all know that in municipal elections, name recognition is enormous. And so if there is not a lot of stuff that we are seeing, this would, I would think, and you've said this, this would seem to really benefit and really favor the incumbents.
2: Yeah, that, uh, again, is the traditional wisdom. If the election were held today at this point, given the level of interest that has not been shown uh, in significant numbers, uh, then uh, for sure I think the same people that are incumbents will be reelected. On the other hand, uh, we've got 18 days to go, and these are the crucial days. And we also have four wards without an incumbent. So somebody new is going to get elected there, uh, and I think, uh, I mean, if you ride around uh, the two mountain boards and the, not so much the uh, the wards down below, uh, but there sure is a sign war going on and uh, um, a, a lot of activity I'm sure is following that as well.
1: In the wards, that, and you're right, there's the four wards where it's wide open and we'll get, we will may get to that in a second, but in the wards where there is a sitting incumbent who is running again, have the folks that have decided to take on these incumbents have, not to be too course about it, but have they completely blown it by now by not doing more to, at this point, have their name out and at least be familiar to most of the voters? Has has their window in some ways passed?
2: So if you look at, um, and let me be uh, very specific, if you look at Ward uh, uh, 4, Sam Marula's Ward, Ward 5, Chad Collins' Ward, Ward 6, Don Jackson, um, then uh, those those three... <clears throat> horsemen not of the apocalypse but of the <laughs> city uh, they, they I think are in for re-election for sure um, but all the signs are certainly pointing to that I would say Terry Whitehead uh, is uh, looking at a shoe-in election he's having more of an issue with the person who used to work for him running in uh, the other ward adjacent to his than he is with his the candidate running in his own ward However, there is a battle going on in Ward 10, Maria Pearson's Ward. There are, what I would say, four strong candidates running. Uh, Maria is a good uh, constituency uh, councillor. She's my counselor, so I see it firsthand. You call Maria, you get action right away. Uh, but she's running against uh, a member of uh, the school board uh, and um, uh, two other people who are putting on a, a decent show. At least as far as the signs are concerned. I, I still think Maria has the edge because those wards will split, uh, but they are uh, making a good showing both in terms of literature and in terms of sign presence. And then there's Ward 9 where you've got, uh, Brad Clark running against Doug Conley. Brad Clark the former counselor, Doug Conley the current counselor. And there's a heated battle, I'm told, uh, in Ward 9 as
1: well. Well, because that uh, would be for Doug Connolly. He is, as, he is in the situation of being as close to running against an incumbent. I mean, I know Brad Clark is not an incumbent, but because of his name recognition, that's as close as you get to running absolutely. against an incumbent as an incumbent.
2: Yeah, you, you pretty well have two incumbents separated by one term. Um, uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Both are very good friends of mine. Uh, and Doug is, uh, trying to hang on to his job because he thinks he's done a good job. And Brad is trying to reclaim his job, um, as the, uh, as the, uh, former counselor there and also has some political experience at the provincial end, uh, and, uh, and that'll stand him in good stead, I'm sure. Then, of course, you've got Ward 7, Donna Skelly's uh, Ward, where you've got, I don't know, eight, nine, ten people running. And uh, I see a number of names, um, at least if you can tell by sign uh, presence. Uh, Adam Durani, who's a local businessman, local uh, mechanic, owns a shop uh, there. Karen uh, Grice-Ugenti, Eugenti, is a, a Mohawk uh, prof uh, running there. Uh, and uh, those two, Geraldine McMullen um, is running. She's run before in a number of different wards, and I think she has Scott DeVell's backing, if that means anything, and it might. Um, So I think those three, and of course, uh, uh, how could I forget uh, Esther Pauls, who just ran for the Conservatives, a good person also running in that ward, and a slew of others as well. Uh, But those four have good sign locations. In Ward 1, there's an interesting race going on there with Maureen Wilson, who is Terry Cook's spouse, and I'm sure... Uh, with his uh, political connections and her experience, she'll do well. But you've got some other good people running there as well. Jason Allen, who came second, I believe, last time. I think he came second last uh, election to Aidan Johnson. You've got uh, Lila Miklos, um, And you've got Sophie Jeffros, who's got uh, presence on Cable 14 and a um, uh, well-educated person uh, with a lot of student backing as well. Uh, and I'm Sandra Cole, and I'm sure I'm missing others as well, and I don't mean to intentionally, but you've got a good race there.
1: Let me let me uh, jump in for well. a sec, because we do have, yep. I mean, there's Ward 3, there's other vacant wards, but I, I'm guessing that, and we only have a few seconds left, but I'm guessing that even when you went through those names, and those are some, there are some names there that are maybe familiar, there are some names that to a lot of people won't be, the fact that some, there are a lot of people listening who are saying, who? Because, I mean, yeah. if you don't follow politics super closely, those names may not resonate. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you do, and we only have 30 seconds, what do you do in the last well, two weeks to make yourself uh, resonate?
2: Well, you keep doing what hopefully you have been doing. You knock on doors, you present yourself, you drop off some good literature, you have some good, uh, have some good endorsements from people who might be known if you're not known. Uh, and then uh, you uh, you cross your fingers and you wait for election
1: day. <laughs> <laughs> Former Mayor Larry Danny, who crossed his fingers and waited for election day a couple times, some successfully, some not, but mostly successfully. Yeah, mostly successfully. I really appreciate the all, time today. good experience. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the time. Thanks for doing this.
0: Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: You read any good murder mystery books recently?
0: I hope. I hope.
1: I mean, I don't know what everybody reads these days. Do people still read books? I guess they do. Although I got to tell you something. I was in Indigo or Chapters the other day up in Ancaster and there seems to be a lot less in the book shelves and a lot more in the pillows and cups and crafty home decor kind of things. And I don't know if that means that people are reading less and just sitting on pillows and drinking coffee more, or I don't know what that means, but hopefully people are still reading. And the reason I say that, well, there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, I hope people are reading in general, but uh, I know this guy, I work with this guy. His name is Barry Gray He's a great photographer. One of the best photographers I've ever worked with, one of the best photographers I know. You can see his work in The Spectator all the time. If it's, a, I mean, The Spectator photographers are all great. Uh, Barry is exceptional at what he does, always has been. Now, however, the guy, I mean, he's still taking pictures. He still works for the paper. But somehow along the way, he has decided that he is an author as well. And it's turned out to be pretty good that he has just made that decision. Uh, he has a six-part murder mystery that is all based in the Hamilton area. It's on the spec's website, it was uh, and in the paper. Uh, it was in yesterday. It's in the spec and online on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And then next weekend, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. It's called Coots Paradise. He joins me now. Barry Gray, how are you? I'm good, Scott. How are you? You are the new John Grisham. <laughs> uh yeah, maybe. <laughs> You're not gonna go that you don't you didn't get the five million dollar advance for this one?
3: Yeah, well, it must be lost in the mail. I yeah, I'm still waiting for that that
1: check. Yeah, you know, we were thinking uh, with the title of Coots Paradise, this could have been set in an old folks' home, right? <laughs> but then nobody would have investigated the dead person because they said, "Well, they're 96." I mean, it, you know, it happens. It, the sort of story sort of ends very quickly. This is not yeah, that.
3: I, I, I suppose you know, and it, and actually, as I was writing it, I just I initially came up with that name, and then sort of the whole time along I, I wasn't particularly wedded to the name and I asked many people you know if they uh, had a better name and none came forward so I to stick with that because it's uh, it's pivotal to the story so it's not it's not totally out of place.
1: Okay so the reason I wanted to have you on there's a couple of reasons I want you to talk about this but also uh, I wanted to talk to someone who is not traditionally a writer not necessarily trained or doesn't work as a writer but who is writing because i think it's really interesting but before we get into any of that stuff why'd you do this why'd you write this
3: this um was sort of born out of a discussion that i had with my manager at the spectator aviva boxer we were having a chat one day and she said i had written uh I had written a novel a couple of years ago and it was published online and, you know, we got talking about that. And then she said, uh, do you think you would ever like to try again, try writing again? And I said, well, I said, yeah, the the whole sort of murder mystery genre kind of intrigued me only from the standpoint of, um, you know, a lot of times like when you write at, at this book or, or, you know, the first book that I wrote, Um, You don't have to necessarily know where it's going. You can just write. And I thought it would be an interesting process to basically have to have all the loose ends tied up and and know where it's going before you ever wrote a word. I I was just I've always been fascinated by that process. Like I looked at um, I don't know if you ever read the, uh, you know, the whole Harry Potter series, but I looked at that. You know, massive. You know, thousands of pages that uh, J.K. Rowling wrote, and then to think that she knew where this was going had to before she ever started because it was so complex. And I thought, well, that's kind of a neat process. So I, I'll uh, I'll dip my split water, so to speak, and see if I can if I can do that too. Uh,
1: that that to me is one of the most daunting parts about this because. When you, And I want to get, into again, into the writing side of this because I've never done fiction and mostly for that reason that to me it strikes me as just way too – it gives me a headache to think of how to get from point A to point B. But before I even get from point A to point B, I have to come up with a plot. I have to come up with an idea that's going to work. So where does the idea come from for you? Did you just wake up with it or did you have to sit there with 12 bottles of scotch and just try and come up with something?
3: Um, yeah, I, I don't know, probably somewhere between those two. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just like, like, oh, I mean, you're a writer yourself. So you have, you know, ideas and thoughts that kind of percolate in your brain. And I just, I know, it, just it just sort of fell together reasonably easily, I guess. Um, you know, when I started to flesh out, okay, where do I want to take this? Um, and just, just the whole thing, like it wasn't, I, I guess I could count myself lucky. I didn't have a lot of major brain cramps, you know, trying to decide where it was going. Now, I guess, you know, at the end of the day, the readers will be the ones, you know, when it reaches its conclusion to say that, okay, well, I can buy that. That makes sense. Or, oh, come on, you know, somewhere in between. But, uh, it wasn't too bad. I mean, it was, uh. I sort of a rough, uh, a rough flow of characters and, and sort of where you want to take them. And there are times I, I did find, again, not being a, a, a pro at this or a seasoned writer, there were times where I would get writing and I would think, hmm, what what needs to happen now? You know, what where where kind going? But I, I didn't box myself in too much. Um, so I was, I was pretty pleased with that.
1: Cause that seems to me to always be, when I read John Grisham or something, and I generally do if he comes out with it, cause it's just so, you know, it's easy to blow through a John Grisham book and, and it's, it's usually great. It always amazes me that he's able to come up with the concept. Once you get the idea, I think for a lot of people, you could at least start typing and start writing and figure out where it's going, but the ideas are always creative and that's always to me the tough part.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think that's, uh, very true. And then, as I said, I think I was fortunate when I sort of thought of where I was taking this and, and sort of what kind of a conclusion I was going to get to, that it kind of came together and I sort of sat back and I had, you know, my chicken scratch notes and I, and I kind of looked at it and I went, hmm, yeah, okay, that, that seems plausible. Uh Could I do it again? I have no idea. You know, the next time I might be the proverbial, you know, blank page sitting there, you know, for a month and then going, wow, I have the same stuff written that I had a month ago. I have no idea. I could duplicate it. And that's why you have to take your hat off to, again, the professionals that do that because they, you know, they can come up with new ideas and they keep cranking them out. I I read once that somebody said, you know, you can go online and there's like a formula for how to write a novel and develop your characters and stuff. If there is, I never found it.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Chatting with Barry Gray, who is a photographer at The Spectator, but he's written a serial, a six-part murder mystery serial that's on the Specs website. It's in the paper. It's called Coot's Paradise. I wouldn't have had him on to talk about this if it wasn't good and it is good it's really good i've only read the first episode it's really well done and it's a really interesting exercise for me to talk to, and also to hear this about someone who is not a writer doing the writing that always interests me and barry one of the things that really jumps out at me because a lot of people want to i think try writing and they don't really know where to start they don't know how to get to it but always i've heard the hardest thing in fiction writing is doing dialogue because if you do it badly, the whole thing sounds ridiculous and no one will continue to read. You've actually done this really well. How did you do it? How do you do dialogue?
3: Uh, that's a good that's Do you talk to yourself?
1: Like, do you say the lines well, out I, loud?
3: You know, I talk to myself all the time. That <laughs> way at least you know one person's listening. That's that's my joke. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I I think... I don't think when I write anything, I don't think I'm one of those people that uses a lot of big fancy words anyway to to impress people with, look at all the big words I know. I think I just kind of write to kind of how people would speak or, or converse anyway. So maybe the dialogue just flows naturally from that. Um, You know, maybe it's, I honestly don't read a lot of fiction. That's the surprising part. Um, I'm I'm the guy that typically, you know, picks up, like you said, a John Grisham, or picks up a book like that on summer holidays, something that you can just sort of sit and plow through. But I'm, I'm, I, I don't read a lot of fiction otherwise. So I don't know that it's necessarily based on that, but it's just, I guess, trying to make it seem believable. Try and, yeah, you read it and then you go back and look at it and, say does that look like um back and forth answer between two people or does it yeah does it sound forced i I don't know maybe i got lucky i
1: don't know (laughs) uh you've based this now this is the other thing you've based this in hamilton that's the whole point that's part of the reason why the spec is running this because it's a it's a unique it's a hamilton based thing um does that make it easier or harder that it's actually based in a real place as opposed to just your imagination
3: um I think in some ways it made it harder. Now, I mean, this, again, born out of this conversation that I had with my manager uh, and and many years ago, The Spectator ran a similar um, sort of a localized fiction piece that, ironically enough, I believe was called Upper Paradise. Um, A former reporter by the name of Wade Hemsworth wrote it. Uh, So it was kind of ironic that I ended up calling this Coots Paradise. Um, I, I guess part of, yeah, part of what made it harder was I tried to I tried to pick um, mm-hmm. local places and stuff, and there are there are things that happen as the story progresses out in the waters of Coots Paradise and on trails and, and various places where, you know, I would have to look at maps and and think, okay, does this does this make sense, um, you know, from a logical? Could somebody call me on this and go, no, no, you can't get to there from here or whatever, as opposed to a fictional town which they can do whatever they want. Right, it has to fit. It's truly, yeah, it's truly fictional. So in that respect, I think maybe it was, a, I had to be a little more careful, and I hope I've connected most of the dots.
1: But there's also the some research involved. I mean, I know you talk yeah. about the old, what are the Hamilton, what was it, used to be called the Hamilton Insane Asylum? Is that what the the proper name uh, was, or?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Century Manor up on the mountain which again had always intrigued me. But yes, I had to do some research for that to kind of explain to fill in for people what that place was and, and whatnot. So yeah, you'd try to if you're gonna set it in Hamilton, you try to localize it enough that people go, Oh, Fennel Ave, oh, the Starlight Drive In. I, I recognize that name, you know, and that's it's, that's what localized it obviously.
1: It just it sounds like a ton of work. I I mean how long this is a six part series again, and each one is probably I don't know, 12 or 13 or 1400 words. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, how long does it take you to do this when it's, again, when you've got to put in the time to research and put in the local stuff and and all that stuff? I mean, is this months or is this weeks or Um, days?
3: No. um, Well, I I was lucky in that regard that because it was uh, a serialized novel for the paper, uh, I didn't have to go nuts writing because I'm not – I'm not the kind. I'm more of a get to the point kind of person. I'm probably the world's worst storyteller in social circles. I'm the guy that just says, "Yeah, and he fell and broke his arm," you know, <laughs> without the lead up to how it happened. Um, so I didn't have to spend a lot of time, you know, I didn't have to write hundreds of words describing a character what they look like physically, which is typically what you would do in a more traditional. But um, no, this. Uh I think this conversation we had probably was back in April, maybe, and then I sort of thought about it for a while, and I wrote most of it uh, end of May and through June. And I would do it. I would do it at work uh, if I had some time between assignments. Um, sometimes, you know, when we're between assignments as photographers, we're driving around looking for pictures or whatever. Sometimes I would just come back and I would just sit in my laptop and just bang out you know <laughs> some words for a couple of hours and that was kind of how it came together so no it wasn't years or necessarily months it was all done by early July and because I had said it originally I had set it in August and my original thought was it would be a good sort of summer you know filler for us and then it just didn't happen so anyway it's happening now in October and that's
1: People can find this. It's on the spec.com right now. They can go to the Spectator's website, look for Coots Paradise. They can get it in the paper. Yesterday, if you find yesterday's paper, it's in tomorrow's paper online, tomorrow part two, and then Saturday, next Tuesday, next Thursday, next Saturday. Barry Gray is the author, but you can also see his pictures in the paper every day. Listen, thanks for doing this, Barry. Really great job on this.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Let me bring in our Good buddy, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, who I think today, I think today may be the greatest day of his life. First day of the National Hockey League season. Countdown to a Stanley Cup parade, a guaranteed Stanley Cup parade. First time in either of our lifetimes, this is going to happen. You, you just can't even control your excitement tonight, can you? What the Stanley
4: Cup parade in on Main Street in Western New York, in
1: Buffalo? In Buffalo, oh, home of Jack Eichel, the new captain as of today. Yeah. That's where, the, that's where the Stanley Cup parade is going to be.
4: Well, I, I, they're definitely not going to win a Stanley Cup, but they're going to be a much-improved team. So, uh, they in, will. In, in a backwards kind of way, uh, I, let's, let, let's, let's not affix me uh, with Leafs Leaf Nation. <laughs> okay?
1: I know you are a long-standing Sabres fan, a long-suffering Sabres fan.
4: Well, I'm not going to say suffering, because there's been lots of great years along the way. In fact, there's been more great years you know, since they came around in 71-72 than the Leafs have had, quite honestly.
1: Uh, it's true no I know Stanley Cups but they've been to the finals uh, early with the French three Connection times. team three times. Uh they've been to the finals with uh Dominic Hashik. that one was painful. Yeah. Uh well, they well, lost to the Flyers seeing, the first seeing time that
4: the, seeing that the league cheated. Well that <laughs> that's
1: tr- you but you're not sour about this at all. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh right, just we had the best goaltender in the world, and the only way that he could be beaten is, is, is a Brett Hall goal that, you know, you guys make up a rule, and then they don't follow it. And uh-huh. and, the, and the the officials don't even stand around to, to even, you know, at the time there was no replay.
1: It was, uh, yes, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. That absolutely was a shame. Now, that said, and it, it's a great segue because the NHL has a long history of not being able to really follow through on the rules that it puts in place or the guidelines. I got to say, today, on the opening day of the season, I have to give the NHL credit, which doesn't always happen, because generally their se- their their player discipline rulings are a sham and a joke and a farce, and today... They got one right, Bubba. The guy Tom Wilson, who's a winger for Washington, who's been a multiple offender, does a dirty high head check, and I figure, oh, you know what? He's been a, he's been suspended like four times. He'll get five games. He got twenty games. They finally got one right. Yeah and
4: and they hit him in the pocketbook too because he's a guy that just signed a new contract as well too. So not only did they punish him with the games that he's going to feel it financially and I hate to say that because you know who am I to say that anyone you know should lose money or whatever but he according, should, according, he to should. The ru- according to the rules of the National Hockey League this guy has uh, you know he's uh, he's approaching predator pro you know you know levels here and the sad thing is He's an excellent hockey player. He can score, he can check, he can be, he can be physical, He can help insulate players like uh, Alexander Ovechkin, uh, a tremendous hockey player that, for whatever reason, can't think on the ice. It just somehow he's out of control. I mean, you're talking about a guy, Scott, that got suspended in the preseason last year, suspended in the regular season last year, suspended in the playoffs you know, last year and then suspended in the preseason this year with an absolutely, you know, irresponsible hit in the head.
1: But for the very reasons that you described a moment ago, that he can play, he can skate, he can score, he can do a lot of stuff, that's why I expected that he was going to somehow slip through the cracks again and get a suspension that you and I would be on here saying, what are they doing? And they, and, and I mean, especially after the Max Domi thing, which was a joke, what he got for punching a guy in the face, uh, the, I, I, it was like, man, okay, you did it. See, you, the, you guys can do it. When you really set your mind to it, you can figure out how to give a guy an appropriate suspension. I, I give them credit for this one. They got it right. Yeah,
4: they really did here. And uh, I think you just uh, kind of gave a little prelude to why I think, I don't think it was the entire reason he got 20 games. But I think the, as you said the league took a severe public relations mashing with the Ty Domi with the, sorry the um, max max Domi. Domi, max Domi suspension because basically he was fined five games for that sucker punch of uh, Aaron Eckblad you know which was you know surprising because you're talking about two players you know not, that are not trying to make a roster, first of all and I think that's why Eckblad who you know who will drop the gloves you know didn't want any part of it. And he got five games for that, and basically five preseason games. Yeah, a vacation. Like, 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 like uh, yeah, a vacation. Got to practice with the club, got to travel with the club, and just didn't need to play the games. And uh, I and lost it, no money. And lost no money because it was the preseason. You know, an absolute sham. So I guess George Parros and his people, like I said, were they were under heat under the heat, not only from the public, but from what I'm hearing from, you know, people inside the National Hockey League, is that there were people within the league office that were very, you know, critical of the penalty once it was assessed. And by then it's it's far too late.
1: Let's move to the Leafs for a minute because they are the story, they are what everyone's talking about. We'll see tonight. The game hasn't started yet, they're playing the Canadians, always a great way, great tradition to start the season. But they are missing a player. They're missing William Nylander. Uh, that has been the discussion point, which is weird. I mean, with all the things going on, you get John Tavares, you get Austin Matthews back, you've got Mar- Mitch Marner playing great, you got all this stuff. Uh, everyone's talking about William Nylander. Who blinks first in this one? Because he's holding out for a big new contract. You've got a new young general manager. Who blinks first? Is it going to be Dubas, the general manager, or is it Neilander and his people?
4: Well, that's a great question, and we're going to see this out. This is how this plays out. Uh, you know, let's let's not be foolish here. If the Leafs get off to a really lousy start this season, the pressure will increase from the public and the fans to get this deal done. But the problem is, you have a new general manager that is very efficient uh, and experienced even though this is his first general manager, manager gig, at putting together uh, salary caps. And you're in a situation where the, these young players are very close in age, Scott. So there's only so much money with a, a basically $11 million of a $79 million salary cap already going to one player alone in John Tavares. You've got to be really creative in what you're going to give Mitch Marner, William Nylander and of course Austin Matthews, who all come up basically within a year of each other, and that's just three players. Right, there are other players in that loop as well too. So, uh, there, ready. From what I'm hearing, he's been offered a, a contract which I thought was you know respectable in, in about in the six million dollar range, and he wants more.
1: Here's what I think could very well happen, and I don't know that this is going to go well for Nylander because the Leafs, with the way the NHL system works, they hold all of his, all the cards. They, I mean, he's Nylander really has no leverage here. He's going to have to sign or sit. If what you say, if the Leafs don't play to their expectations at the start of the season... I don't know the pressure is going to be on Dubas to sign. I think what happens is William Nylander becomes public enemy number one. He becomes the villain for Leaf fans. And then when he comes back, I don't know. I mean, I suppose he could score 50 goals and win them over, but I think he sets himself up to be the guy like Larry Murphy once upon a time or somebody else who's the whipping boy for everything on this team.
4: Um, you know, I don't know. I, I just think I think there's an acceptance now by fans. And I think there's an acceptance, especially by the players within themselves, that when it's your time, contract time, you've got to do what you've got to do. And there's been no promises that he was going to appear at a certain time. We all knew this was coming. Uh, you're right. There's the December 1st date that a deal's got to get done, or he's done for the year. Now, if nothing is done as of that date, um, hey, one of two things here. He's going to get traded to another team will have to another team will have to deal with the contract for next year a long- term contract or they're just going to deal him away period. Um, and would you deal him?
1: Depends what you're gonna get. You, if you, if if you the, could get a the, decent the, the, if you could get a decent defenseman a, well, a pretty good defenseman would you deal him? Well I think you need more than just a pretty
4: good defenseman for a guy that has his potential and especially a guy that's about 22 23 years old and we haven't even seen the best of this kid. Um, you need, you're going to get a lot more than that. But you've just said the key word in a sense. You don't want to be in a situation where the end of the year comes, he can't get a deal done, and then he becomes a, an all-out free, He goes from a restricted free agency to an all-out free agent where then he can now shop himself to the highest bidder and you get no return for him. So I'm sure that you know Dubas is not a, a dumb guy. I mean, he he's going to have a good feel of this. About what, of what going to do. He, there's always an option for him if he get, doesn't get a deal done to play somewhere in Sweden. So you know, I I wouldn't worry. I don't think he's worried about playing hockey. But uh, I I just think that right now, you're saying you know, in many ways that you know what it's not in the hands of the players when you're a restricted free agent. The car, the team does hold some cards. But he sounds like he's pretty stubborn here, and he wants his money.
1: If I was one of the players that, and I, I don't know that this would ever be something that would, flood, but you know what? If I'm the Leafs, you look at a team like San Jose who's got so many guys on the back end now. Now that's the strength of their team, but they've got some some problems up front now with injuries as well. And uh, you know, if I'm the Leafs, I may be already thinking about if we get into this season and he doesn't want to play. Can we find a team that's got one of those top end defensemen somewhere and, a, and a, an abundance of them? And because that's going to be the least problem. I mean, the defense—they're—they're going to score goals. Defense is the problem. I, I'm not going to be stupid enough to say that you call and you ask for Eric Carlson, but no. maybe you call and ask for Eric Carlson.
4: Well, I don't think that's going to happen. I think you what you're going to get is what you're saying—a good defenseman and probably draft picks. No one is going to give up a. Top-line defenseman for a guy that's in a restricted free agent that needs to re-sign a contract next year. Unless there's an actual agreement that yes, we're going to re-sign with you, and and but you know that the chances of that happening are are very very slim. So I think you know up, uh, as I said, you, uh, a good serviceable player that can contribute, an NHL player, um, not a, an AHLer that's going to come up and down, but it's got to be that, and probably a, a good uh, a good second to third round draft pick. You know, for a guy like uh, William Nylander, because it just I just don't think, you know, teams teams are not going to bite on on giving away number one defenseman for a guy that you know basically is a rental player.
1: Here's the one question for you though: uh, The Ottawa Senators traded Eric Carlson to San Jose. And by pretty much every estimation, I mean, they got some draft picks back, but the players that, that Ottawa got back are questionable players. They're not A-list prospects. They're guys who may work out, they may not work out.
4: Two, two NHL players and one guy that's an AHL.
1: But, but guys that are not, they're not star players. They, they're not seen as potential oh, no, stars. No, no,
4: no. They're, no, they're, they're, they're purely role players. Right. Well, I will say this, though. One of the players they got... Was a 2017 first-round draft pick of, of the Sharks, so the potential is there for a good player.
1: I don't. We don't know what would have happened, but if you had, if you were Kyle Dubas, knowing that Ottawa had Carlson on the market, would you? And knowing what your situation with Nylander was, and that he is a lot better than what San Jose was offering, would you have offered up Nylander and say a first-round draft pick or a first and a second for Carlson?
4: You no, know, but you can't because really what they got was basically three first. I mean, a, a two first-rounders, a, a, a conditional if he resigned. So that'll be three first-round draft picks, Scott, plus basically three players, and one of them was a former first-rounder. The Leafs weren't going to do that. For, they weren't going to do that
1: much. But you know, I, like I, they,
4: that would that would that, that would have never ever ever that 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 would have been insane for the Leafs to do that. Plus, remember he had to sign a con- he's you know he's, he, he's, he's got a, to sign one that's right He's got to sign a contract so the leaves are there's no way that the, the Leafs are in that position in a position to do that. I
1: just my I guess my question, my broader question and and again, you can get into the specifics of who they might have or who they might not have. I guess the broader question is I'm using Carlson as the the dream player that you would want to have if you're the Leafs. Do you think that at any point they would have actually offered up or would have thought of offering up Carlson thinking this was going to happen? me no way
4: you' you're giving away too much of your future. This is a team right now. You know, I know that everyone's talking Stanley Cup right now, and I think Babcock said it best, you know, in the beginning of the season, at the beginning of the uh, preseason. You want a team right now, you know what, they bottomed out, you know, three years ago, and then they got the first-round draft pick in Matthews. You want to continue to build. But you want to build a team that's taking a run, not to this year, but taking a run for the next five to eight years and by doing that and panicking and getting a player like Carlson at the expense of what it would have cost totally totally ruins that plan.
1: You know what though? I mean I again I don't I don't think that Carlson uh, certainly Ottawa there was no way and and you know there was no way Ottawa was ever going to trade a star player to the Leafs. There's I mean the, the Ottawa Senators fans their heads would have simultaneously all exploded together <laughs> if they had traded their best franchise's best ever player to their provincial rival people would have burned down the arena there which they probably want to do anyway and move it to downtown ottawa that would have just expedited the process but the fact is that if you could get if you could somehow have figured out how to get carlson for nylander it's probably a it'll be a three or four million dollar difference in salary when all is said and done uh man you do that it's just I, I, I mean nah,
4: it's got, to, it's got to cost you much more Carlson's the best player in that deal I, even I agree if was, even if it was a straight a, a straight you know like you're saying hey I'll give you Carlson for Nylander. Ottawa again who are a team that have torn it down have traded away Hoffman have you know traded away Carlson and who knows about Duchenne and stone you know the two of their top scorers. there's no way the Leafs would have offered or could have you know, compensated what Ottawa were looking for in this situation. Who
1: is then, and I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you sure. were if you were going to use Nylander, if this thing drags on and you were going to use him as trade bait to try and solidify your blue line with what you're talking about, a young guy who's going to be still in his prime as the Leafs are getting better and are taking a shot at it, and a guy who's not going to break the bank, who is that?
4: Uh, You've got to find a serviceable defenseman. But again, first of all, top-line defenders are, I mean, there's there's good forwards all over the place. There are not good defensemen all over the place. And that's why those players are looked at as such a premium. So to me, like I said, in my opinion, the only thing that the only way it works I think with anyone is going to be a good you know, probably a good second line defenseman, maybe even a third line defenseman and a draft pick. That's as good as you're gonna get for, for a player of that caliber. But it's at least it's better than than, than the
1: nothing. See what we really need, if you're a Leaf fan, what Leaf fans really need is a general manager out there to suffer a knock to the head. (laughs) <laughs> and, and be sort of in in subtle, concussive mode and then make a really bad trade. And, you know, we've seen this before around here. Yeah. You can argue that that Doug Gilmore trade might have fallen into that category where all of a sudden at the end of the trade you go, sorry, they did what?
4: Well, they took a run at that. Cliff Fletcher took a run, and they got they got close. They got to the final four. You know what, Scott? Here's another thing to consider, too, on why the lease will not mortgage a future again for even, uh, you know, in a trade for Nylander is the fact that we still don't know what these guys have at defensemen. No. There's guys like Borgman, Cali Rosen that are all right now just on the verge. Travis Dermott is a second round draft pick that right now he could be that elite defenseman. We just don't know. So, as the Leafs there, you know, everyone's kind of saying, well, the the, the, leaf, the weak point on the Leafs is the defense. And that's right. It was clearly proven against the Boston Bruins in the playoffs last year that, you know what, in the regular season, these guys can go out and blow out guys 5-4 almost every night. And it might even be 6-5 this year with the addition of Tavares. But in the playoffs, when you've got to be able to grind, when you've got to play a different type of hockey and meet teams like Boston and Tampa Bay for set for possibly seven straight games, You need to be better on the back end. But again, the development of some of these young guys a year from now, we could be saying, you know, the, the Leafs could be saying, it's a good thing we didn't mortgage a future because some of these guys have really panned out. So again, like I said, like Babcock said, you want to take a run for five to eight years, not just one.
1: Uh, anyway and besides you're right and i think this whole discussion is moot because the leafs will not lose another game for the next 5 years they are <laughs> they are going to go undefeated for 5 straight years they're going to they're going to match the 191970s montreal canadians dynasty of 5 straight stanley cups they're going to go 82 and 0 every year or 80 and 0 whatever their season is now i mean it, it, if you're a leaf fan Just, you know, get your Ovaltine ready and your whatever else and pull up by the TV because they will never lose again.
4: You know what the really, really sad part about that commentary of yours (laughs) is? It's that there are people, and, and we both know them, I actually believe that's going to happen.
1: Yes, there are, and even <laughs> though you and I talk about, you know, whether Nylander could be traded for an elite defenseman, there are those same people who go, "Well, why not just trade two seventh-round picks for Carlson?" San Jose will do that. Well, n- no, it's it's you know what, it's um, but you're right, they are out there for sure. And uh, as of today, they actually do believe what I just said, very tongue in cheek. Well, uh,
4: hey, Scott? Uh, do you think uh, we could trade like uh, you think uh, teams would like maybe uh, a Cadre? Uh, Borgman and maybe Josh Levo for uh, Connor McDavid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you think? You think? I think those guys. Uh, Connor McDavid would want to play in Toronto, don't you
1: think? I, I've I've heard those people more than a <laughs> few times, more than a few times. Uh, and, and to answer your question, uh, yes, I'm sure Connor McDavid would love to play for the Leafs. I'm just not entirely sure that uh, those Edmonton Oilers folks, as as much as they've made dumb mistakes, I'm not sure they're concussed enough, <laughs> enough yet to make that trade. You
4: know what? It's funny when you think about it, when Econor McDavid was drafted that day, how unhappy he appeared. Yep. Remember? And like, you know, I think, you know, there was a feeling that he was more than happy to go to Buffalo. You know, especially a guy that had played, you know, with Erie and, you know, would have been close to home for him, you know, to the to Southern Ontario. You know, this is a big year for the Edmonton Oilers.
1: How yeah. different... We, we're out of time, but I, you wonder how different... They, they, Buffalo Sabres made Jack <laughs> Eichel their captain today. But... You know, Jack Eichel to me is is a really good player, but I I don't put him in the category of a Connor McDavid or an Austin Matthews. He's a little step below. But how different? How different do we look at things down in Buffalo if Connor McDavid is there today?
4: Well, their their rebuild would have been you know would have been much quicker. You know, definitely the, the rebuild would have been much quicker. And you know what? Let, to, to be fair to Jack Eichel, I will say this. Let's not forget that first of all. Points per game, he's better than Austin Matthews. You have to put into perspective that for two years he had, you know, injuries of more than 30 games, of about 30 games, and nobody around him and no one around him, you know, not like the Leafs. So, so basically the brain trust of who put together the, Sa- the Leafs has been much better than the brain trust who put together the Sabres. I, but there's new guys there now, uh, and I think they're in good hands right now.
1: And Jack Eichel wins the award. I don't know what the NHL is award uh, that goes to this, but he wins the NHL award for rosiest cheeks in the league. <laughs> he does have
4: rosy cheeks. I never, I've noticed that. I thought it was the only one.
1: <laughs> he just he only has to walk up a flight of stairs, and he looks like he's all covered in rouge. Anyway, who knows? Maybe, maybe he leaves home with a little bit just to look like he's been working out. Uh, Bubba O'Neill, you can catch him tonight on CHCH. He'll be doing the news. He'll be doing the weather. Uh, he'll be talking about another guy with rosy cheeks. Uh, Mackenzie Entwistle, new captain of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Yeah, I yeah, like
4: that. Uh, good for him. Good I choice the, for them the, as well. The, the, the Georgetown product. Uh, proud of the guy. I mean, what a year they're coming off of. And you know what? Their team's still pretty good this year. It
1: is. And, and you know what? Full marks to Mackenzie Entwistle because he's, actu- he's not just a good hockey player, but I want to say this. He's a really, really good kid. Very polite. Very Enthusiastic, very thoughtful kid. I, I'm, I'm happy for him. Listen, thanks for doing this. As always, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, bud
0: The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML.